We'll turn to Acts chapter 8. Today, today we're going to look at the conversation between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Ethiopian man. I mentioned it last week, but there's some really valuable stuff in the text here for us as Christians and for us as a church in regards to evangelism, in regards to the sufficiency of scripture, and then also in regards to being filled by the Holy Spirit, being filled and walking with the Spirit. Remember, though, as we've said the last few weeks, it's the message of Jesus that's the most important thing to the writer of Acts, to Luke. The message of Jesus, the witness to Jesus is paramount in this book. And yet, shouldn't it also be that way in our own lives? Shouldn't the witness of Jesus be paramount to us? I mentioned the text from 1 Corinthians 19 last week that says that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price. He, he goes on to say, therefore glorify God in your bodies. And so that's, that's our call, brothers and sisters. Your life is not your own. The dreams and plans that you have for your life should not revolve only around you, right? The witness of Jesus should be the most important thing. Well, here in the story, the Philip, the, the spirit has got a hold of Philip. He's gotten a hold of him and he's sent him out of Jerusalem. He sent him on a, down a desert, hot, dusty road. And an opportunity comes up for him to testify to Jesus. And we talked about this last week. The spirit didn't have to drag him kicking and screaming to go talk to the Ethiopian man. Philip got up and ran. He got up and ran to where the spirit was calling him to. And it just kind of proves this point that I make again today. And it's this. When we follow in obedience, we always find that the spirit is already at work. In, in this story, Acts 8, certainly we see that with the Ethiopian man. Last week I mentioned he'd given up a lot to go to Jerusalem, to buy this scroll, to, to go home months of his, of his time and his life dedicated to these things. So by the time Philip gets there, God was already doing something big. There's really no other way to describe what's going on here. The spirit is moving. By God's grace. And he prompts Philip. And Philip actively and immediately obeys. And a divine meeting occurs. And so we're going to read about that in chapter 8 verses 30. Through the end of the chapter verse 40. And then we'll pray again together. Start with me in verse 30. So Philip ran to him. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And asked. Do you understand what you're reading? And he said. How can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip. About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for your word. Our brother Caleb already thanked you for it this morning. We can't thank you enough because it, it guides, just like this Ethiopian man said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Lord, your spirit is here among us, guiding us to, to understand. Do that, do that as a work in our hearts uh, even more this morning because we need it. Our minds, even our, our spirits get, get hung up, get preoccupied, get filled with a lot of junk from the world throughout the week. We need the pure milk of the word this morning. And so bring that to us, our thirsty souls today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we know from what we just read that God was already at work, uh, both in Samaria, both in Philip, and also in this Ethiopian eunuch's life. We know that Philip ran to him, and when he arrives, I just want to point out, when he gets to meet this guy, finally starts having a conversation, he doesn't do anything spectacular, does he? Look at Look at what the text says. I mean, he doesn't have to offer this man a free coffee for him to be able to share the gospel with him. He doesn't have to give him the the newest self-help book. He doesn't have to do really much of anything at all. There is one thing, though. Philip needed to know the scriptures, didn't he? Because when he came up, he heard what was being read, and he identified it as being from Isaiah. And the Spirit worked in him to know exactly, starting with that scripture, it says what to say to this man. Because that's what the Spirit does in his people. Brothers and sisters, that's what the Spirit does in you when you're walking according to his ways. Now, when Philip goes up, he recognizes the text from Isaiah. They didn't have access to all the written New Testament books that we do at that time. So Philip, though, was well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures And in the prophecies concerning Christ, that when he got there, he knew immediately what he was reading. And I I think it's interesting, this interaction. This is where we learn a little bit about evangelism in the church. Okay, When When he gets there and he hears him reading this, what does he do first? You can look at verse 30. He asks a question. This is a great segue. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand? It's a question. He obeys the spirit, he runs to the chariot, he hears and recognizes the scripture being read, and then he takes the initiative by engaging with this man by asking him a probing question. What Do you understand what it is? Now again, Acts 8 is primarily about the faithful proclamation of Jesus, but there's a lot we can learn here about evangelism too. So there are things that we can learn here also about the human condition. What I mean is, is if you look at the Ethiopian, 
Likely, we talked about this last week, he was likely a man of wealth. Remember, he was in charge of all of the queen of, uh, of Ethiopia's treasure. He was certainly an important man. He was a man of influence in his society to some degree. But he found himself unable here to do anything about his spiritual condition on, on his own. No matter how wealthy he was, how affluent and how prosperous and how well off, he couldn't fix this. He couldn't change it. And so in his humility, I'd point out, he allowed this commoner like Philip to come up and teach him. In fact, the way this reads to me is that he was actively humbling himself. He asked he said, how can I? He was having a conversation and wanted this to happen. He was desperate, I think, and invited some teaching into his life. He placed himself in a position to receive God's grace. This kind of thing only happens when the Spirit is already at work, right? When the Spirit is already moving and working in a person's life. Because without the Spirit's work... Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we're in trouble. Specifically, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. I don't know if this man had heard that kind of language before, but I think he understood it. I think he recognized it. He was searching by the prompting of the Spirit, and Philip comes in this interaction. But even in the state of being dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 reminds us that because of the great love with which God loves his children, with he loves us. He has made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Philip, same way, saved by grace. This Ethiopian man, same way. If he's going to be saved, it's going to be by grace. So Christian, here's an encouragement to you as we get started this morning. Read the Bible for your own pursuit of holiness, for your own instruction, for your own encouragement. But understand that what you read is not just for your own instruction and encouragement and knowledge. It's to be given away to others as well, right? Specifically, moms and dads, you got a ministry right there in your kids. You read the scriptures for your own encouragement and instruction, but you read it for theirs as well. Because we're called to share that and to shepherd our kids. God intends for us to share it with them, maybe with a spouse, certainly with our coworkers, with extended family, with friends, and maybe, kind of like in this story, maybe with complete strangers, which, if we're real honest, is a pretty intimidating thing for, for us as Christians. Now, some argue that it's harder to share with family because you see them more frequently. And if some stranger rejects you on the street, not a big deal. You're not going to see them anymore. But I would argue that in my own experience and in talking with many of you and other Christians throughout the years I've been saved, it's, it's just kind of difficult overall, isn't it? There's a lot of awkwardness, but understand that we need to have an understanding of the scriptures and then be walking in the spirit and follow his prompting because the witness and testimony of Jesus is paramount, right? So study the scriptures often. 
Study them well. And if you need to, be like this Ethiopian man and humble yourself by asking for help and understanding. So study the word and humble yourself. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, you guys are familiar with that text in Matthew 28. He's giving it to his people, to the church, to Christians. And so I think we should understand the Great Commission in a church-wide concept. We don't fulfill it isolated on our own. God gave that message to the church to go and to do. And that's why he's gifted different people in the, in the church for different tasks as, as, it, as it pertains to the Great Commission. Jesus says about the church, he says, not even the gates of hell can prevail against them. Paul concludes that the church is how the plan and wisdom of God is made known to both the physical realm and the spiritual realm. Brothers and sisters, Christians ought to be a part of the church. They are, but they ought to be involved in a local assembly. And yet we know that what we're talking about when we talk about the church is not just bricks and mortar. We're not talking about this physical structure that we're in now. God has blessed us with it and we thank him for it. We want to take care of it well. But this is where churches meet is not the church. The church is us. We know that. The church is made up of individuals who have varying gifts and who have the measure of the Spirit given to them, who work through the Spirit. It's people who know the Scriptures, who are teaching them to others, and who are led by the Spirit. We've heard this term, you've probably heard it before, uh, being a missional church, or, or being a church on mission. This is, this is a good thing to become popular, as far as phraseology goes, because a church that never undertakes the mandate of Jesus in Matthew 8 and Acts 1, can you really even be considered a church if you aren't taking the gospel out? Well, churches should strategize and prepare to take the gospel to their community, beyond their community. We had the privilege of, of having some real-life missionaries from across the world here recently. We should have a hand in sending them out and supporting them. But you know what? Being a missional church has very little to do with programs or an outreach ministry or an advertising budget. A church on mission is a group of born-again individuals who know the scriptures and who are being led by the Spirit. I think that's what a missional or a church on mission is because we can blast our neighbors and our neighborhoods with the slickest advertising methods around. But if they come to a church that doesn't have a high view of Scripture, they're going to find something else to do on Sunday mornings. We can design the simplest evangelistic method that there is, but if the church is full of apathetic and lazy members, people are going to find something else to do on Sunday mornings. Do we know the Word of God? Are we being led by His Spirit? Now, the reality of it is, we're probably not going to get invited to go sit in somebody's car and tell them about a Bible verse that they've been reading. That's kind of what happens in Acts chapter 8. It's a special circumstance for sure. But evangelism and obedience usually come in the daily rhythms of life. On your notes, I've got some situations listed. Maybe you can identify. Is there a neighbor that you've been meaning to visit? 
Is there someone new at work that you've been meaning to strike up a conversation with? Do you know a struggling family that could use uh, a pre-prepared meal to just drop off for them one evening? Is there someone in your life who continues to be on your mind and heart? Is there another Christian that you could get together with to learn the scriptures better? And you could think of a hundred other things to fill in these blanks here. Responding to the Spirit's leading in these kinds of things, those day-to-day normal activities, is what it means to be a part of a missional church, I think. And if that's the kind of church that you want to be a part of, if you say, yeah, that sounds like something that I want to be a part of, here's my encouragement and challenge to you this morning. It's, it's simple. It's this. If that's the church you want to be a part of, start doing it. Start being that kind of a Christian. Make it that way by knowing the scriptures, by digging in deep and studying them on your own time. Prioritize it above other things. Be obedient to the spirit. When you feel that call on your life, maybe it's to go talk to someone or maybe it's just to prepare something for them. Send them a note of encouragement. Don't turn it away and say, I'll do that later. You won't. (laughs) Just like I won't. Do it. Be obedient and reach out with the love of Christ. In this situation, the spirit was already at work in this Ethiopian man. So when Philip climbs into the man's chariot, as he's invited in verse 31, there's not a whole lot for him left to do, is there? The spirit was already at work through the word in Isaiah. I I think that's how it goes. And I don't want us to forget this, brothers and sisters. Our testimony of Jesus means a lot. But our testimony, even that, ought to be just dripping with Scripture, right? It ought to be filled with what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from sin, to put us on the path and keep us on the path. And so even our testimony ought to be just dripping with the Word of God. Spirit, The Spirit does His work through the Word. Jesus explains in His parable of the sower that the gospel is the seed that's planted by Christians. Paul explains that some Christians plant. He says some Christians water. He says some even get to harvest. But who is it that gives the growth? It's God. It's God that does the work by his spirit. Isaiah 55 is such a sweet and compassionate and empowering word to God's people. I'd encourage you, go ahead and turn there in your Bible I think I've got these maybe in your notes, but you can turn there to Isaiah. Specifically, chapter 55. This would be just after uh, what the Ethiopian man was reading. But look at verses 10 and 11. I hope that this is an encouragement to you this morning. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Is there any doubt in those verses Is there any skepticism on the part of Isaiah at all? Now, he's quoting the Lord. This is the Lord speaking to him for us. 
and Christians through the ages. There's no doubt here. Look at the, the, the wording. It shall accomplish and shall succeed. There's no doubt. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, saying, he says, uh, when he's tempted in the wilderness, he responds back to the devil, and he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. What does he say? But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Paul encourages a young Timothy by connecting right living with salvation that comes through faith in Christ. And he says this in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture, every word, will accomplish, will succeed. Christian, church, Ramsey Creek this morning, when you go out and you faithfully share the word of God about Jesus Christ, you don't have to wonder if it's working. You know it is. God promised that it is. You don't have to doubt that if you share the word of God, God's going to use it. Something is going to happen. Scripture is sufficient. The reformers use the term sola scriptura. Uh, you may have heard those five solas. They use that term specifically to drive this point home, and it basically just means Scripture alone. The Reformers used that to help people understand, to, to have a solid foundation on which they were uh, understanding belief and Christian life and the Word of God. Scripture is to be understood as the sole means of divine revelation to God's people. The only inspired, infallible, final an authoritative norm of Christian faith and practice for the Christian. It's God's word. What you've got in your hands is it, brothers and sisters. Throughout the ages, God has blessed the church with men and women who have written many solid and encouraging things when it comes to faith and the scriptures and Christian life. And it would do most of us a lot of good to read more of what's written in those ways. But sola scriptura means that we don't need any of those other writings to know or follow Jesus. You don't need any of those things to be a committed follower of Christ. The scriptures alone are sufficient in the sense that they are the only inspired and inerrant words of God that we need to know in order to know salvation and to know the way of obedience. You've got it. All scripture is breathed out by God, Paul says to Timothy. And what's it given for? What's the purpose of it? If you're still there looking at your notes, you can see teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness with the end goal of the Christian being complete, lacking in nothing. He says they're equipped for every good work. Philip hears the Ethiopian reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And I think that's divinely providential. I hope, I hope we've seen that through the last few weeks of how God has brought the Ethiopian man to this point and Philip to this point. Because if you look back and if you're still in Isaiah 55, just turn back to 53. 
Isaiah 53 is one of the most detailed passages in the entire Old Testament about the atoning sacrifice of the coming Messiah. It's no coincidence that the Ethiopian man just happened to have arrived at that chapter as Philip arrived on the scene. He would have just read chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So by the time he gets to verse 7 and 8 of that same chapter and reads about the gentle lamb who was led to the slaughter without making a sound, which is what Philip heard him reading, he asked Philip, verse 34 of of Acts 8, he says, who is he talking about? Is the prophet Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? What is going on here? He read these verses and he was confused. And remember, Philip engages him with this question. He says, well, does it, do you understand? He says, no, how can I? I need somebody to explain it. And that's, that's the, like the softball lob for a Christian, right? Explain the word of God to me. Now, There are times when situations like this happen. I've heard and read testimony of Christians that they sit down on a plane and they're ready to put their earbuds in and block everyone out and someone next to them taps them on the arm and says, can you help me understand this? That doesn't happen very often, maybe, but it does. But this guy, he says, help. Help me. Explain it to me. Everything that these two men had recently experienced was preparing them for this meeting. Look at verse 35 of Acts 8. Keep your finger in 53 if you want, Isaiah 53. Acts 8, 35. I love this verse. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. All of their past had led them to this moment. The signs and wonders, the service in the church, the persecution that Philip was experiencing, the expenses of travel for the Ethiopian man, the disappointment of worship in Jerusalem, all of it led them here. It's it's mind-boggling for me to consider how God weaves the events of our lives together, even the hard ones, into a beautiful tapestry of grace. Spirit opened the door for Philip to testify to the crucified and risen Savior. And he ran through that door without hesitation. There's something else here that I got really excited about this week. If you, you can keep your finger in Acts 8, but if you're in Isaiah, just flip back to Isaiah 52. The Ethiopian man was reading the text aloud. Right, he was in chapter fifty-three, but it's likely that he had been—he'd started from the beginning of Isaiah, and so he's just read Isaiah fifty-two. Look at verse seven. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion. 
Your God reigns. Philip opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I don't know that it's a stretch. Maybe it is to say Philip's feet were beautiful here, weren't they? Certainly beautiful to the Ethiopian man. He was the divine messenger of truth and grace to this man. And I wonder how many times that's us for somebody else. The the New Testament is pretty clear. At times we entertain angels even unaware. There are moments and situations where God divinely puts you right with somebody who needs to hear the truth of Jesus. Are we running through the door like Philip did? Or are we doing everything we can to not cross the threshold? Philip opened his mouth. Just a couple other things I want to point out in regard to to evangelism here. I've already mentioned that Christians need the spirit and the word to accomplish the great commission. The, the, The brutal truth is there are no shortcuts and there are no generic versions of what it means to follow Jesus, guys. There just isn't. And for many of us, that means reestablishing healthy habits rather than poor habits in our lives to prioritize this. But walking in the spirit and knowing the word of God, these are just general marks of a believer. But notice when Philip starts talking to this man, he didn't require him to do anything. He didn't tell him, okay, you, you want to know what the scriptures say. When you get back to Ethiopia, go to a local Jewish rabbi and sit under him for six months and let him teach you about God. He didn't make him go do that. He didn't go teach him Hebrew so that he properly understood every detail and minutia of the text that he was reading. He started where the Ethiopian man was, didn't he? Right there. Isaiah 53. So I think that we're putting unbiblical burdens on people if we give them the impression that they need to look a certain way or perform certain tasks before they're saved. We don't see Philip do that here. We certainly don't see Jesus do that here. He welcomes all the stinky fishermen, the, the ones who are considered lowly in society and outcast. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Jesus is very clear that to follow him, we have to deny ourselves. We have to abandon sin. We have to take up our cross and leave everything else behind if we genuinely want to follow and love him. He's very clear about these things. But what Philip is on the ground floor of here in the book of Acts is that this blessed salvation that comes through the name and power of Jesus Christ is for everyone who believes not just for those born in the right family or in the right lineage or in the right town. He's saying it's open for everyone. This was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy at at Pentecost, the Spirit of God being poured out on people. Philip follows the Spirit's lead here. He opens his mouth and he explains the good news about Jesus by meeting this man where he was. But that's the second thing I want us to notice here. He met him where he was, but he didn't leave him there. And that's, I think, where too many Christians and churches cut things short. We we rightly say, come as you are, because Jesus did. But Jesus didn't tolerate sin. 
And we shouldn't either. Specifically sin in our own life, but also sin in the church, our family. Philip didn't leave him there. He didn't minimize sin. He didn't minimize the Savior or what was necessary for him to be saved, follow Jesus at all. He met him where he was in his understanding of Jesus, but he took him past that. He took him deeper beyond it. He explained the good news of Jesus to him. I got to believe that Philip explained Isaiah 53 as messianic, and he connected it with Jesus Christ. That's what they've been preaching the whole time in the book of Acts, right? They go back to the Old Testament, they wrap it into the New, they point the finger at the Jews and say, this, the Creator who you killed rose again, and now that message is moving fast. It's moving out beyond the borders of Jerusalem to Samaria, soon beyond even there. And he's connecting Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, with Jesus Christ, the one who was just ascended into heaven. I, I got to believe, too, that Philip told him all about Jesus and his encounters with him, or at least his understanding of them, his, his resurrection, his ascension, his powerful delivery of the Holy Spirit on believers, the birth of the church that Philip was likely there for, the faith and strength of his friend Stephen, the Spirit being poured out even on the Samaritans, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but I imagine this man from Ethiopia might have heard this testimony of Jesus, of the Spirit being given to people even outside Jerusalem. And maybe he thought, if enemies like the Samaritans can be saved, maybe there's hope for me. Now, we aren't given the details of their conversation, but again, it had to focus on Jesus it had to be all about him. And look at the effect that it had. It had a, an immediate and it had a lasting impact on this man. We know it because verse 37 or 30, 36 and 38 say that as they were t- talking, he looked out and he saw some water and he didn't te- hesitate, did he? Now, remember where they are. They're in a desert place. There's not a lot of water to be found out there. So we can just keep tracking the providence of God here. Okay? Philip appears right as he's in Isaiah 53, right after coming from talking to the Samaritans. The Ethiopian man is in Jerusalem, a multi-month journey, right there, same time. And then as they're speaking and sharing about Jesus, all of a sudden there's water in a desert place. Come on. This is God at work, isn't it? We see it here. And just as, just as Philip didn't hesitate to run to an opportunity of ministry, this Ethiopian man did not hesitate to follow Christ in obedience and baptism, did he? He didn't have to tell his family even when he got home. He didn't have to tell anybody else. He says, here it is. So Philip's teaching must have been pretty comprehensive, right? To explain baptism to him. Because that's not really lined out super clear in Isaiah 53. So Philip must have taught him pretty well on their journey. And he gets, they get to water and he says, I want to be baptized. Now, if you're following along in like a King James version or new King James version, you're going to notice that, uh, you have a 37. And if you're following in an ESV or another modern translation, you don't have a 37 verse 37 in your text. But I got a footnote that kind of explains what's going on here. 
Uh, it's like this because of a couple big scholarly terms called textual criticism and textual variance. Uh, we actually talked about this. You might not remember, but uh, like in our, in our time in Mark, Proceeding starting in the book of Acts. There's a section there that was kind of the similar textual variant. And so I'm not going to go through all of the reasons why verse 37 is not in some of the translations. You can think back. I think it was in June of last year. Um, but there's also a lot of really scholarly articles that you can read that I'd be happy to send to you about why stuff like this happens. Um, I don't, so I'm not going to go too deep on verse 37, uh, for that reason, but also I don't think it really changes how we understand what's going on here. If it's in there, if it's not in there, it's in probably in your footnotes. Uh, he says, if you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the son of God, that sort of thing, he uses that language. And, and to be truthful, the rest of scripture bears it out the same. There's other passages uh, that we can look to. I've got some of them in your notes Deuteronomy 6, 5, Mark 12, 30, Luke 10, 27, all of them say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, all, all of those things. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So if Philip were to have said, believe with all of your heart, that's not an unbiblical thing to say. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Certainly scripture bears that out. John three sixteen teaches that. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Jesus is the son of God. Luke 1.5, the angel Gabriel is talking to Mary and he says that Jesus is the son of God. Before birth, Jesus is the son of God. So neither of these things are unbiblical. So it wouldn't be wrong for them to be in there. Scripture testifies to scripture. That's a good Bible study method that we learned several weeks back, right? to look at it from that point of view. And the point of verse 37 would be consistent with what I've proposed as the cornerstone of the book of Acts anyway. It's about Jesus and it's about making Jesus known. The other thing that I want to point out in regard to evangelism here is we've already mentioned it several times is that Philip opened his mouth. You, you can't talk without opening your mouth. I mean, unless you're a ventriloquist or something like that. I don't think that's what was going on here. Uh, but Philip opened his mouth to talk. Now, again, this might not be that revolutionary. It's not. But the enemy and the world and even our own flesh sometimes would want us to think that we don't need to say anything. We just let our lives do the talking. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a part of that that is absolutely 100% true. You have to live as though you've been changed and saved. Following Jesus changes your life. It absolutely involves righteous living. In fact, you can't claim to know and follow Jesus if you continue to live the way you did before you claim you were saved. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 John, and many other books of the Bible insist on changed life. But what I want to point out is that following Jesus as a Christian literally sometimes involves opening your mouth to testify to Jesus. Knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus will result in us speaking about him. Brothers and sisters, preach the gospel with your lives, but preach him with your mouths too. 
open them and share the truth. It's not an either or kind of a situation. It's a both and, right? You live your life and you speak. First Peter 3.15 challenges us. He says, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's within you. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. How can we be ready at all times to make a defense in gentleness and respect for the hope that's within us unless we're being filled by the Spirit and by the Word? So let your life and your words testify to the good news about Jesus. So the Ethiopian man follows believing in Jesus with the logical step of believers' baptism. And as a Baptist pastor, by choice, I'll remind you, I would contend that the order of these events is significant, that he believed before he was baptized. We'll actually get to talk about that in particular a little bit later on in the book of Acts, so I'm not going to go too deep into it today. But baptism was important. This man knew it, and he was baptized. And when they came up out of the water, something miraculous happened. Philip's gone. He's just gone. I guys, I can't explain it. There wasn't a chariot mentioned. There wasn't an airplane mentioned. He didn't sprout wings. He just appeared in Azotus. That's it. The Spirit took him. That's all I can say. I have no other explanation. The Spirit of the Lord did it. I hope that's enough for you. This is a supernatural movement of God by the Spirit to take him there from Gaza to Azotus. And that's the only explanation that is given to us. We know the why that he's taken. Look at verse 40. He's taken there to start preaching the gospel to all the towns, to Caesarea. This was still the joyful task that Philip willingly participated in by the Spirit. And it was part of God's plan for the gospel to reach an even broader audience. So he took him away there. And though we don't hear about this Ethiopian man anymore in Scripture, really, we know, look at verse 39, the result that this had in his life. An immediate and lasting result, I believe. It says, he went on his way rejoicing. This guy had joy, brothers and sisters. He had an encounter with the real Jesus by the testimony of the word of God and by one of his, uh, by one of the Spirit's workers in Philip. And this guy was changed. And he went away rejoicing. Once he was disappointed, frustrated, confused, now he goes away joyful and rejoicing. Hearing a Christian share with him the good news about Jesus absolutely changed his life. He has peace and joy now. And if you think about it, isn't that what Jesus does? He brings joy. Oftentimes he brings peace. Isaiah 53 says this. He brings these things. The Spirit, by the word using Philip, showed this man the Lamb. In, in Isaiah 53, the text that he's read, it talks about this Lamb who was led to the slaughter. You can look back, Isaiah 53. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Philip doesn't have to do a lot here, does he? He's already, this man is already reading about the lamb and Philip's just connecting the dots for him and teaching him and saying, that is this. That lamb led to the slaughter is the Christ who died on the cross, who rose again. He is the lamb. He's not talking about a sacrificial lamb, like the Old Testament sacrificial system. That may have been possibly what the Ethiopian man had in mind when he read that in Isaiah 53. What what kind of lamb is he referring to here? Specifically, Philip connects this sacrificial lamb to Jesus. And to remove any doubt that that's what's happening here, Revelation makes it crystal clear that the lamb is Jesus. That Jesus is this lamb. Revelation says that the lamb is the one who is worthy of all praise. The only one who could open the scroll. The lamb who will conquer. And who will make war on anyone who opposes him. Revelation says that the Lamb is the one who is all the light that the city of God will need in eternity. Revelation says that the Lamb has redeemed his people by his blood. That's the Lamb. That's the one who Philip introduced this Ethiopian man to. I want to end my time with you guys this morning for our last song, listening to a song, a video. It's written by a man in 1986. But as as I was reading this passage this week from Isaiah 53, and this song came to my mind. It's one I heard as a a young person. Uh, It's unfortunately the author of this song is not one I would recommend. He has, since writing this, turned his back on the Lord. He has walked away from sound doctrine and is not living his life for the Lord. And yet I can recommend this song because it focuses and directs our hearts to Jesus, the Lamb. It's called Watch the Lamb. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And as they sang a new song 
saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and opens its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, I think, I think Philip said something like that to the Ethiopian. He said, watch the lamb. Look to Christ. He's worthy. That'll be the refrain. It's echoed. Down every hall of every mansion in eternity, he's worthy. So, Lord, uh, this is also, if that's the refrain of heaven, how much more so should it be the refrain of us on earth as your people? And so, God, may we this week go with this joy in our hearts, just like the Ethiopian man left rejoicing, may we go rejoicing knowing that you are worthy and that your spirit has been given to us as a seal and guarantee, but also as a convictor of sin, as a encourager, as a comforter. And so work in us, in your people this week. And Lord, if, if we've not put our faith in you, Someone listening this morning, God, this is our call, is, is to watch the lamb and run to the lamb, the one who was slain in your place, that you might be saved. So we thank you for the lamb. We thank you for his shed blood that has redeemed us from unrighteousness, and we have been given his righteousness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And all God's people said this morning, amen.